Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Rahman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at burnedbybooks. Let's start the show. Bodie Kane, film professor and podcaster, is returning to the boarding school of her youth to teach a class to the students of the Granby School. Her return to rural New Hampshire is undergirded by the mystery of the murder of her one-time high school roommate, Talia Keith, in the spring of their senior year. The case, like so many instances that involve the death of a young white girl, is the subject of hundreds of online theories for how the murder might have been wrongly decided, how the school and authorities might have gotten it all wrong. When Talia's body is found drowned in the pool with signs of head trauma, suspicion turns immediately to Omar, a young black man working at the school as an athletic trainer. But Bodhi begins to suspect the school acting in its self-interest in closing the case, in finding a non-student and a non-teacher to take the blame, may have indeed closed off other obvious suspects in the murder. Rebecca Mackay's latest, a blockbuster page-turner of a literary campus mystery, I Have Some Questions For You, is narrated as a conversation that Bodhi has with her former Granby music teacher, Denny Block. Mr. Block had been rumored to have had an intimate relationship with Talia, and that pregnant detail burns in the back of Bodhi's brain as the return to the sights and sounds of Granby unburies the anguish associated with that murder all those years ago. Could Mr. Block have gotten away with killing Talia just because of the ease of accusing a black man? And what of the other suspects with complicated ties to Talia, her boyfriend Robbie, ski team champ and big man on campus, her girlfriends, one of whom flees the campus soon after the murder, 
And what of Bodhi herself? When Bodhi's students become preoccupied with the case, creating a podcast to do their detective work, Bodhi is flung back to her own painful experiences at Granby, a school that, like the rest of the country, is a place of regular abuse of women who dare to exist in the spaces of men. Told with her extraordinary skills as a magician of plot and character, I Have Some Questions for You buries you in a story that is at once utterly unique and entirely familiar. Rebecca asks the question that our modern moment seems incapable of explaining. Why is the murder of a young girl such a common story that it becomes difficult to differentiate one murder from the next, one innocent woman from the countless others that predate and follow her. This is a novel about our deep well of misogyny and what crawls out of that dark space when someone dares to ask questions. Rebecca is the author of the National Book Award and Pulitzer Prize finalist, The Great Believers, as well as the novels The Borrower and The Hundred Year House and the short story collection, Music for Wartime. She lives on the campus of the Midwestern boarding school where her husband teaches. Welcome back to the show, Rebecca Mackay. Thank you. It's so lovely to have you here, and what a wonderful addition to your now canon of work. What I love about you as a novelist and storyteller is that you're a chameleon, capable mm -hmm. of, of adopting new voices, new persona, fresh dramatic action, and certainly new genres. How did you find your way from the historical fiction of the great believers to the campus mystery of I have some questions for you? Yeah, I mean, it's not like one led me to the other, for sure. Um, I'm someone who, you know, I have just kind of infinite things I want to write about. They tend to be very different from each other. And, uh, you know, I, life is short. I don't know why I'd want to write something too similar to what I did last time. You know, you mentioned that I do live on a boarding school campus. So there was always this possibility in my mind of writing a boarding school book. Um, a bunch of other, you know, different things kind of snowballed in with that. This interest in the ways we talk about true crime, the way that certain uh, true crime stories seem to become public property. And the idea of looking back, uh, which we were all doing, you know, we all do all the time anyway, but especially in those early Me Too years, there was a lot of, of kind of casting an eye back on adolescence, early adulthood. Those things rolled in with that. You know, normally as I'm finishing up one book, I have a bunch of others sort of stewing and uh, the one that really starts to accumulate a lot of things around it and demand a lot of my mental energy is usually the one I, I turn to next. And there is sort of like a, you know, let me do something completely different this time feeling that I always have. Like, I, you know, the stuff I just did was hard and I want to do something, hmm. you know, I never, I know better than to think the next thing's going to be easy. Although sometimes I lie and tell myself that, but <laughs> I need it to be hard in different ways. Well, one of my favorite aspects of how you structure the novel is the intermittent chapters that attempt to understand how each suspect in Talia's murder that comes to the surface in Bodhi's narrative could have committed the murder and with what internal motivation. Mm. Why was that an interesting way of developing the tensions of the novel? Yeah, you know, I think basically because I had made the decision that we're going to be locked in the present not the present tense, but the present day, like we're not going to jump around in time. I needed a way 
to still show what might have happened. And, you know, early on, it's showing many things that might have happened. And, and as we get towards the end of the book, we realize that one of those speculative passages is maybe sort of close to the truth. Um, and we can, you know, we at least have enough pieces of, of different things that we've pictured to, to put together um, what, what might have happened. So this was a way of, of kind of taking us there and going, okay, like, what would it look like if Omar, who's been convicted, what would it look like if he actually did it? What would it look like if, if it were Mr. Block, this, this guy that the book is being sort of fought at? Originally, this was not a good idea. Originally, I had all of those little sections together in the middle of the book. Hmm. There's a part one and a part two. And really more than halfway through, a lot more than halfway through the book is when we switch. And I originally just had them all completely stacked up, like this kind of interlude. And that did not work. <laughs> it was <laughs> like putting a giant weight in the middle of a clothesline. It was just like, whoosh, this really, really sinks the whole thing. So I ended up weaving them in much more organically. You know, these are just things that Bodhi is thinking about uh, in the time that she's back on the campus. Well, and they emerge at such interesting and important times mm. and for various reasons, none of which I'll give away. Um, but I can't imagine them all sitting together because yeah. they are um, <laughs> they are organic to what's happening around Bodhi. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so funny because what, what ends up feeling maybe hopefully very natural when you read something probably probably would did not feel that way to the writer it was probably tortured mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah i'm sure <laughs> listeners of the show will know that i'm something of a zealot for the campus novel mm -hmm. and i can I think I can claim without too much hyperbole that the subgenre is growing exponentially and that the kinds of writers and the kinds of voices in that once rather niche genre um, have diversified massively. Is this a genre that interests you as a as a thing? And why did you want to bring your murder mystery to a boarding school? Right. You know, it's funny. I kind of I kind of balk at at genre in general not 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 like i'm a snob against it but meaning like well why do we have to put things in these categories you know um but um i will say like you know yeah as a reader if i am looking at the back of a book and it is you know a high school campus novel or a college campus novel or you know from the professor's point of view whatever that is i am kind of i am drawn to it that is something mm -hmm. intriguing and and promising do you have any thoughts on why yeah not i do to introduce I, uh, not I, to interrupt you but no i do um i think one thing is the juxtaposition of a place that's probably pretty historical there's you know in terms of the buildings the legacy a place that's maybe been there for hundreds of years and then also this really transitory population of students who come through and there's, you know, these dramas and whatever, but then they're gone so quickly. Mm. And then the generations replace each other so quickly that to look back, you know, many generations back in real life would mean looking back to like the 1800s, right? But mm -hmm. at a boarding school to look many generations back is like, you know, look back to the nineties. <laughs> and there's something about that turnover, the way history works, the way time works. That's really cool. Um, there's also, of course, the hothouse aspect, mm -hmm. just, you know, these people are really isolated in some fundamental way. They are, you know, 
uh, in this case, Granby, you know, is in the woods in a very small town with not much else going on around it. Um, but even when we read a novel set at, you know, Harvard or something, there's still that sense of these people have made their own universe and it feels, mm-hmm. you know, everything feels magnified the way it does really when you're in high school or in college. Um, it feels like these people, your reputation within this set of people or your success within this set of people is everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, to, you know, as a writer, you know, you're trying to build these spheres of, um, you know, in which your characters operate. And there's, it's nice to be able to use this kind of natural microcosm that, that really does exist in the real world. Yeah. And, and that kind of Petri dish aspect of it, I think is, is even more heightened by having it at a high school where right. people are so unformed and they've been put in your, your word was right the hot house which then allows them to grow and develop you know sometimes in kind of stunted ways sometimes in really like liberated ways but it's i i think it's even more so than a yes, college it is very much right you know the the hurts that people carry around with them or the the way they think about themselves that the, for most of us has a lot more to do with high school than college yeah, no, that's so true. You're very explicit in your acknowledgments that Granby is not the boarding school where you live and where your husband teaches. But you, of course, must draw some of the ambiance and way of life from your experiences with that close proximity to a particular boarding school. How do you feel like it influenced the particular spaces and places of Granby? Sure. You know, in terms of the physical space, not much at all because I really um, I had a lot of fun of just you know dreaming up a campus and the traditions and the you know the layout and the names of buildings and all of those things. Um, yeah, the names are great, by the way. That's thank great you. detail. Thank you. I have fun with that. But you know, in terms of and I should say, just you know, as a sideline here, you know, I, I know that school very well, but as a writer. I've been brought in to spend a few days at a time at a bunch of different boarding schools and, you know, got really gotten a sense very quickly of, of different vibes for different schools in different parts of the country. Um, you know, ones that are old and venerable and ones that are, you know, single sex, ones that are younger, ones that are more experimental. So I, I feel like I have this, it, you know, it's not just where I live. It's, it's all these other things too, but you know, the, the, the familiarity with that school, I think, especially helped me in writing faculty life, which is a part of the book in in this 2018 section when Bodhi returns to this campus. She has a friend, a you know, classmate of hers who teaches at the school. And so she's involved in various, uh, you know, campus parties, faculty gossip. That vibe was actually important to me. Um, it's something that you never see depicted really when you're when you're reading about a boarding school or watching something about a boarding school um the only one i can think only book i can think of that does that well i'm sure there are others that i don't know of but um skippy dies by paul murray which is about Mm. a british you know boys all ages boarding school um it's very different but you know for the most part actual faculty life is neglected and i think it's honestly, one of the most fascinating things about an environment like that, that you have these people who, for instance, are constantly moving into each other's apartments as various people move up in seniority. So you'll go to a party, 
in an apartment where you used to live and someone else there also used to live there and oh my goodness. <laughs> right but some but then a third person now owns it and you know, uh, some random person says, oh, where's the garbage can? And you and the other person who used to live <laughs> oh, right over there, you know, um, it's just, a, it's unusual, right? Uh, yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Unusual. Yeah. Um, campus novels, uh, almost without exception, deal with power imbalances mm -hmm. in, in all kinds of relationships, but often sexual ones, mm -hmm. and, and often between teachers and students. Yeah. Your narrative is written as a one-sided interview or conversation with Bodhi's former music teacher, mm -hmm. uh, Mr. Block. He is suspicious. A suspect and his relationship to Talia, too close and too intimate to be appropriate, is something that it dominates Bodhi's thinking. Two questions. First, why do you think that campus novels return again and again to these kinds of abusive relationships? Mm. And second, how did you decide to have the novel structured around this conversation with Mr. Block? Yeah. I mean, I think that if we just back up and say, you know, power differentials as a main major topic of this kind of book, that makes a ton of sense, right? This is, um, it, you get an isolated group of people and you essentially, to some extent, get Lord of the Flies, you know, <laughs> the, 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 who's in charge within this tiny world, who has power over whom. And, you know, realistically, it's interesting because I, you know, I know uh, I, I, I was, this gets very complicated, but I was a day student at the boarding school at which we now live, um, long before my husband taught there. So I was there as a day student, left, went to college, went to grad school, met my husband, dragged him back to Chicago, and this is where he got the job. So it is my high school that we live at. Mm. An added layer of weirdness, right? Um, <laughs> but I will say, you know, for that school, you know, in, in this century, things have been significantly, honestly, kind of scandal free. You know, people are just, I think they're making better hires. They're training people better. Um, schools don't pass abusive teachers on to other schools with a, with a nice recommendation. That used to happen though. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I'm not alone in having stories from high school in the early nineties um, where there were those abuses of power. Um, I think almost Practically anyone who went to a boarding school before 2000 can tell you a story like that. Um, so this isn't just, you know, gosh, why does our mind always go to this one imaginative place? It is, well, this is realistically um, some of the stuff that was going on. And we look back on that now, you know, with significant shock and horror, you know, things that might have seemed scandalous in the 90s, but that now are, you know, we realize were and are absolutely beyond the pale. But that just kind of felt like, yeah, this is what happens. Oh, shoot. <laughs> um, it's it's the, the sea change in, in cultural, you know, psychological understanding of those pieces of power is, is enormous. Mm -hmm. I might be reaching, but I couldn't help think that in um, reversing the kind of power dynamic that exists in something like the novel Lolita, in mm -hmm. which Humbert Humbert speaks to and of Lolita, and she cannot answer yes. that in your story, by not allowing Mr. Block a voice to answer you back, right. um, you were playing with a literary history that, that has long tales. Thank you. Yes, that's really sharp. Um, so, you know, the, I didn't actually yet answer your question about, you know, deciding to have this kind of form of direct address. Um, 
it really, I don't remember what moment I decided to try this out because you're throwing a lot of spaghetti at the wall when you start writing a book. Um, but I do know why I kept it, which is, you know, several reasons. It allowed a sort of focal point for the narration. It allowed me to, um, it made decisions about what to explain and what not to explain about the school much easier. It allowed the sort of pinpoint for anger. And then yes, also the decision to, to have her be the one who gets to speak and he does not get to respond. He doesn't even get to listen necessarily really. Mm. Um, he doesn't appear in the modern day. He is made voiceless, which I think is, a you know, I can't say it's some act of revenge because he's not real, <laughs> but, um, but is, it felt like an appropriate resting of power. And it, it would have felt very, very strange to me if, for instance, he had gotten to respond. Mm -hmm. um, that would have felt really antithetical to what I was doing with the book. Yeah. And I could see not wanting him to have like a moment on the stand in the courtroom drama right. in which he could say, oh, you know, th those crazy girls, they, they, they remember things wrong from right. their past. What we do get, Omar does get to speak. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. His voice is has really been sidelined, and that is, you know, uh, partly because it is Bodhi's book, but also replication of reality. This guy has been silenced in prison all this time. He's been able to speak up very little, but it was important to me that late in the book, he essentially gets a chapter. And the way that I do that is... It's not like the book is handed over to him, but he gets to speak on this podcast. But he gets this chapter where he is able to speak for himself and to say uh, from his point of view what happened. And that that was essential to me, that he did get a voice, even though of necessity and because of the kind of story and the reality of who gets to tell a story, it is small within this book. Mm-hmm. One of the most powerful elements of the structuring of I Have Some Questions for You is the refrain of the dead girl, the dead woman, and the aftermath of media coverage of that particular person. Right. She is in your telling every woman. The details change, but the story is always the same. A man kills a girl or a woman because he can, because she has a body and he can destroy her. You return multiple times in different ways to this form of retelling that idea. I wonder if you would read for us the opening prelude of the book in which you first experiment with that refrain. Yes, I would be happy to. I like that you called it a prelude. Um, we're not it, it, like you get people don't read prologues, so it is not labeled as a prologue because if it were, no one would read it. So it's just not called <laughs> anything at all. And then you read it, and then there's part one afterwards. Um, <laughs> that was very wise, <laughs> right? Yeah, prelude is a better word. Okay, you've heard of her, I say, a challenge, an assurance to the woman on the neighboring hotel bar stool who's made the mistake of striking up a conversation. To the dentist who runs out of questions about my kids and asks what I've been up to myself. Sometimes they know her right away. Sometimes they ask, wasn't that the one where the guy kept her in the basement? No, no, it was not. Wasn't it the one where she was stabbed in? No. The one where she got in a cab with different girl. The one where she went to the frat party, the one where he used a stick, the one where he used a hammer, the one where she picked him up from rehab and he, no. The one where he'd been watching her jog every day? The one where she made the mistake of telling him her period was late? The one with the uncle? Wait, the other one with the uncle? 
No, it was the one with the swimming pool. The one with the alcohol in, with her hair around, with the guy who confessed to, right, yes. They nod, comforted. By what? My barstool neighbor pulls the celery from her Bloody Mary, crunches down. My dentist asks me to rinse. They work her name in their mouths, their memories. I definitely know that one, they say. That one, because what is she now but a story? A story to know or not know, a story with a limited set of details, a story to master by memorizing maps and timelines. The one from the boarding school, they say. I remember the one from the video. You knew her? She's the one whose photo pops up if you search New Hampshire murder, alongside mugshots from the meth-addled tragedies of more recent years. One photo, her laughing with her mouth but not her eyes, suggesting some deep unhappiness, tends to feature in clickbait. It's just a crop shot of the tennis team from the yearbook. If you knew Thalia, it's easy to see she wasn't actually upset, was simply smiling for the camera when she didn't feel like it. It was the story that got told and retold. It was the one where she was young enough and white enough and pretty enough and rich enough that people paid attention. It was the one where we were all young enough to think someone smarter had the answers. Maybe it was the one we got wrong. Maybe it was the one we all, collectively, each bearing only the weight of a feather, got wrong. Thank you so much. And you will return to something like this form, but with a difference each time, multiple at multiple moments in the novel. Why did you want to have this refrain, almost a chorus of, of people speaking about this idea of the omnipresence of deadly violence against women? Right. Here's what happened. I really wanted there to be a story in the news in 2018 that was throwing Bodhi off balance. The way, for instance, that the Christine Blasey Ford testimony just really shook us, a lot of us mm, up. For days, mm. right? So the problem was, I didn't want to take a real story like, say, the Christine Blasey Ford testimony and throw that in there and then not be able to give it its due. I also didn't want to invent a news story and have the details of that news story be muddled up and take attention away from the details of the, the story of the book. So in frustration, I decided that what I would try to do was, you know, she turns on TV and she's watching the news and this happens maybe 50, 60 pages in and She's just going to insist that it's all of these stories at once. Hmm. That it is mm -hmm. the one with the morning show host, but it's also the one with the senator, and it's the one with the swimmer, and it's it's just all of them. And she's not going to tell which one it actually is. Uh, I wrote that section. This is the first section where she's actually watching the news, and and this happens, and I liked it a lot. I liked that there was this sense of deluge. There was this really very real sense of like, oh my God, there are all these stories, they blend together. Certain ones stick out to certain people for certain reasons. You just latch onto them. Certain ones capture everyone's attention. Other ones are just white noise. Mm -hmm. It's just that overwhelm. You could do the same with, you know, for instance, police brutality or mass shootings, right? Just mm -hmm. that the, the ones you remember and the ones that just blend together. Um, I liked it, but you can't just do something like that once in a novel. Um, you you got to, you know, 
weave it through and do it a bunch of times, which then really worked for me. Um, it changed away from that news story, you know, in later chapters, it becomes other kinds of lists. Um, and it made sense for me that we would start the book that way as well with this sort of litany. And in this case of the opening, really a sense that we're positioning Thalia's case among all of these other true crime cases that you might that you might really know of or you might not because mm -hmm. honestly, a lot of them are real but a lot of them i also made up um, uh, interesting yeah so the idea that like you know i'm not writing true crime i am fundamentally writing fictional crime so that you know we're although i'm writing fictional crime we're positioning this story as one of those stories that you've already heard about mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um that that worked for me that was in that you know, you, you try a lot of things, for instance, you know, stuffing seven speculative sections right in the middle of your novel. <laughs> and and then some of them work, some of them don't, and you throw them away, and some of them you change and, and try to keep in some other form. Yeah, and it and one of the really interesting things it does is it both uh, specifies and generalizes Thalia, which I'm hearing that for the first for the first time because you you create confusion about her how I to do, pronounce her name, um, which is I, intentional. I should have asked you, um, but no. Thalia. Um, um, but you both make her specific and general. Right. You, you write so devastatingly. And then when Thalia died, uh, that way her body had been mangled, the way she'd been tossed into the water, the way every girl was just a body to be used, to be discarded, the way if you had a body, they could grab you. If you had a body, they could destroy you. Mm -hmm. It becomes, she turns into the general, the multitude. I thought that was really interesting choice. Mm. Yeah, right. I mean, I think that's, that's what it is. That's what happens. We hear a case, you know, whatever kind of case that that sort of taps into not it's only its own individuality, but like, oh, it's another case of a woman gone missing from a native reservation and nobody cared. Or it's another case of police ran down, a, a, you know, a black man because he was carrying a violin case or whatever, you know, like, mm -hmm. it's that there's the, the tragedy of that individual situation, but it also fits into these categories. And in fitting into those categories, I think becomes in many ways more devastating, right? Like, oh my God, it's another, you know, um, this is the water we're swimming in. This is terrible. Um, but also then, you know, it, it, it's messy. Like some things are lost when it fits into those categories because you just go, oh, one of these. Um, or you you use it to your own ends. Or it becomes, you know, uh, one of a list of, of many things. Um, I think that's where the particularly Black Lives Matter, the idea of say her name or say his name mm -hmm. becomes so important, right? It's like, yes, this is a list. We're giving you a list because this is a huge, overwhelming societal problem, but we're also taking a moment to mm -hmm. honor the individual. But it's this, it's this bizarre dichotomy that we live with in these cases where it, it you know, it is an indicator of some larger trend. Hmm. That's nicely said. I I don't think this novel could exist without the first season of Serial. It, right. it changed entirely the way in which citizen journalists use that form of the podcast as a way of exploring unsolved or perhaps wrongly wrongly solved murders. Um, can you talk about how the podcast movement influenced your creative process? 
Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm so, I, I appreciate the way you asked that because, you know, that it couldn't have happened without Serial rather than saying, so you must have listened to Serial and gotten inspired and decided to write a novel, huh? <laughs> it's just, it's, it's, it's like, all based on Serial. Right? <laughs> Not at all. Um, but yes, the um, that, you know, our interest in true crime as humans is probably as old as humanity. Mm. But we do live in an age now when you know, there are several media, podcasting is one of them, but certainly Reddit boards and um, just, you know, YouTube, where someone at home could develop an interest in a case, whether it's lurid or helpful in some cases, Mm -hmm. and spend an entire weekend doing nothing but absorbing media about that case. And that's really different than what people used to be able to do. The upside of that is that you do get like people submitting familial DNA or identification of Jane Doe's or people highlighting marginalized cases or cases of marginalized people that would not have been put on Dateline. So there's, there's great benefit to that. There's also, you know, God, in the cases where it's like, well, this is already, this is over and done. And we just keep talking about it. Why do we need to keep talking about Jeffrey Dahmer? Why does that need to be another Netflix special, another thing when there are, you know, victims' families are out there and there's no real good that's going to be done by looking at this again. So it is, you know, a many-edged sword, I guess I would say. But yeah, I mean, I think one thing, you know, this is this is a crime novel or a detective novel only in the loosest sense. It's not going to be shelved with those books, but we do have a murder at the beginning and by the end we know who did it and we have our protagonist in a sort of detective role. And I think that um, you know, people in the past, you know, Agatha Christie and whoever used to have to make kind of strange excuses for the citizen detective, mm. the Miss Marple, like, she just happens to always be nearby, right? <laughs> Fletcher, like, maybe Jessica Fletcher's a serial killer, man. Have you ever thought about that? <laughs> um, but um, in, in the modern day, this idea that people could get involved is very real. Uh, it's there's a very uh, it's kind of a nice easy path in for the writer, but also in real life, this is this is realistic. Uh, my mom is really really into genealogy, hmm. and she got into all these online forums. And her like retirement hobby is helping random people figure out who their families are. Oh, where so people go on these forums and be like, well, I took this test and it says that this person might be my first cousin, but I don't really know and I don't know how to contact them. And my mom will like adopt these people and be like, okay, so here's what I figured out. And this, you know, this person came over from Germany in 1832 and that like, <laughs> and then like stays in their lives as they like draft emails to people and reach out to people. And like, it's, it's amazing. Actually. I want your mom to do that for me. <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> totally. Yeah. yeah. So she's working out for people. It's, it's kind of amazing. I, if I, I love it. If I were like a more, commercial writer um i would like write a series and you know this would be my detective series would be like the she's a retired linguistics professor you know like the 86 year old retired linguistics professor who solves genealogical mysteries for people online but then you know someone gets mad oh (laughs) man you would make so much money as soon as you want to like write those under a a a pseudonym you're going to be in the money right you'll know (laughs) either it's me or someone who listened to this podcast and was like, that's it. When I see you like driving around in a Bugatti, I'll know that you've brought (laughs) brought it out. (laughs) 
Um, I wanted to ask about uh, about Omar, uh, yeah. who is you know the athletic tr- trainer at Granby, who's convicted of of Talia's murder, um, and is black, and, yeah. and his race is a factor in in all manner of ways, and especially in the limiting of suspect that a, suspects right. that occurs early on in the in the case. I wonder. It's clear you're interested in thinking through the way in which um, race kind of directs uh, understanding of who is a suspect, um, you, the way you delve into what it means to be incarcerated as a Black man, and the general biases of the judicial system. How did you decide to have that be part of this? Right. I mean, basically, realism led me there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I wanted a case, I didn't want a case that had never been solved. I wanted the case that had been solved and kind of patched over um, that people might look back on and go, wait a second. And if we're talking about wrongful incarceration, it does disproportionately affect black men. That's just where I was going to go. I also think that you know, I'm writing about, I chose to write about New Hampshire for several reasons that for instance, uh, this is a, this is a state with a very small population and very small, you know, state budget and the, heft of one very well-endowed boarding school within that state mm-hmm. is enormous, um, the way that they could influence the police investigations. There, there were many reasons for New Hampshire, but having chosen to set it there, you know, that idea of not only do we have, you know, uh, race is a factor in the judicial system anywhere, you know, I'm from Chicago, race is a factor in the judicial mm-hmm. system, mm-hmm. Um, but in New Hampshire, this guy would be so, you know, in such a minority as, as a black man, um, that the, you know, things would be perhaps, you know, in real life, it, it's hard to say, cause it's not real life, but even more stacked against him, mm-hmm. um, certainly more stacked against him and the way that, um, his race would make him, uh, almost uniquely an outsider. There are some black students at the school, but they they tend to come from money, some of them. Um, he's really, really an outlier. And so became just that much more convenient of a scapegoat. Um, it was also important to me, honestly, that there was evidence against him or what seemed to be evidence against mm-hmm, him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that someone like Bodie, who is someone who thinks for a living about systems of power and, and um, you know, she's, she's a, she's a deep analytical thinker could have accepted the story that he was the one responsible mm-hmm. for this long. Um, you know, when it was all newspaper clippings and dateline episodes that she had access to, there seemed to be a, a large body of evidence against him, including DNA. And he had confessed, although he then recanted it, but that would be, you know, realistically be enough for most juries. Mm. Um, uh, it's not like, you know, I, I didn't want the case where it was the sort of straw man argument of like, well, look, they arrested him with zero evidence and they put him in prison anyway. It's more that there was evidence that if you looked at it with a certain lens did look damning, mm-hmm. but when you reexamine it, perhaps not. Bodhi herself becomes a distraction for the case when her Twitter defense of her husband's mistreatment of a younger woman becomes fodder for a 
kind of semi-canceling. Uh, Bodhi wants to defend her ex because of the the relatively smaller stakes of his abuses, but she becomes more concerned as she makes connections in the pow power imbalance that exists mm -hmm. in both that case and in Thalia's. Can you talk a little bit about the connective tissue that gets uh, linked between these two things? Right. So, I mean, yeah, talk about not wanting to have a straw man argument. Uh, you know, I don't think it would be a very interesting book to just have it be, let's look back at the past and demand accountability for all these people who were wrong. We are right. The end. Mm -hmm. um, because God, it's more complicated than that. And there are, you know, in real life, there keep being these situations of, things that come up. I think the Aziz Ansari story is the classic one for a lot of us, that we were in the middle of all this Harvey Weinstein stuff. And then suddenly there's this story that for some people, they feel like it really crossed a line, but for a lot of people, it didn't. And how do you even have that conversation someplace like Twitter? You can't, you know, unless you're going to mm -hmm. fall on your sword. And, um, and you know, how do you think about that? How do you write about it? You just end up having these kind of tentative offline conversations. Uh, for me, it's, you know, with other women going like, I don't know, did that seem, hmm, um, that didn't seem so bad to me, or that's, that seems different in, in a fundamental way. Mm -hmm. um, and these things keep coming up in the literary world, in, you know, in the art, various, you know, sections of the arts. Um, it's interesting in, in arts worlds and, and, uh, Bodhi's ex-husband is a visual artist within this book. Power is much more loosely defined. Um, you know, in an office, someone is either your superior or they are not. And even in Hollywood, you know, it's, you know, you follow the money, who's the producer versus the executive producer versus whatever, versus two artists, and one's a little more successful than the other. Ah, is that, you know, mm -hmm. is that the same thing? So it's, it, it's a very murky territory. And, you know, the book does certainly does not come down on the side of Bodhi is definitely right. And this, you know, definitely does or doesn't cross a certain line. Bodhi, uh, in defending her husband, really overreacts, gets herself in a world of trouble. And I would imagine most readers sitting there going, stop. Don't do that. Um, <laughs> no drunk twittering. Yes, don't drunk tweet from the bathtub is I think the moral of the entire book. Um, but uh, it was important to me that this was not all one thing, that this is a big, murky spectrum. Um, not even a spectrum. I, I keep thinking of it as like a tar pit, you know. Um, and we just, you know, I, this is the kind of thing that people can debate. Um, it's the kind of thing, it's been interesting to me, the little, you know, I, I try not to look too much at just like online reviews, but people do tag you sometimes um, on Instagram or whatever. And it's been funny to me that um, the younger the reader is, the more they feel like Bodhi's husband was in the wrong mm -hmm. and she should never have defended him. And the older the reader, they're like, yeah, this is one of those cases where like, who, who cares? <laughs> Um, it's been very, very interesting. Um, That's fascinating. So, you know, I think a multi-generational book club might have, might come to blows, but uh, I disavow any responsibility for 
for harm. Uh, the the book club that comes to blows is like uh, you know your next uh, your next book. I think. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's part of the whole uh, retiree genealogical. Oh, right. Yeah. Her book club. Her book club is the circle of friends that she tells it all to. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Uh, before we let you go, I would love to hear some of the things that you've been reading recently and mm -hmm. loving, and might like to share with the listeners. Yeah. So you might know Chris just because we're we're friends on social media. Um, I'm doing this thing where I'm actually reading my way around the world in translation. Mm, I love it. <laughs> yeah. I um, So my father passed away in 2020. Uh, and he uh, he lived in Hungary. I wasn't able to be there for the memorial because it was 2020. But he was, among other things, a literary translator. So um, this is my memorial to him. I'm kind of amazing race style, reading my way around the world. Started in Hungary. I'm going to end in Hungary. And um, it's around the world in 84 books because he lived to be 84. Mm, and how lovely. It's pretty great. I'm on, things have slowed down because I'm on book tour, but I'm on book seven right now, which is uh, a Syrian novel called No Knives in the Kitchens of the City by Khaled Khalifa. It's very good so far. Mm. Um, my favorites so far from the list, I loved The Door by Magda Sabo, which is what I started with. I love I that book. I believe I've never read it before. Yeah, it's an amazing book. It was the one that people kept asking me, like, they're like, oh, you're Hungarian. Have you ever read The Door by Magda Sabo? <laughs> it's like your one is like goulash and that are apparently people's <laughs> Um And I hadn't. And oh, my God, I loved it. It's so, so it's It's underread in the U.S. for sure. But I feel like Europe knows about it. Yeah. Yeah. And then my other favorite, um, with a few more qualifications, just because it there may be pieces that haven't aged well, but so good is um, Madonna in a Fur Coat by Sabahatin Ali, which is a Turkish novel from the early 1940s. It was really largely overlooked in its day, but in the past five years has become the best-selling novel in Turkey. Wow. Um, I think because of its unusual take on gender norms, uh, which young readers in Turkey are thirsty for, mm -hmm. um, given their... the regime and power. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's all, it's, it's lovely. It's this kind of devastating story of a doomed love affair, this young Turkish man who goes to Germany before the war. And it's, it's really good. It's, it's a pretty easy read too. These are fantastic. And I always, always appreciate recommendations for translated literature because yes. I think it's we really, don't we don't read it and, and it's so wonderful and so expansive in what we think literature is and does. Right. Um, well, one I, of the things oh, we, yeah, we're so spoiled because almost everything gets translated into English because mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. lingua franca, but so much is published in, in English originally, um, including from other countries. You know, yeah. I've read a lot of Nigerian literature in mm -hmm. English, Indian literature in English. Right? We, we, you know, you could live your whole life reading a book a day and never run out of things to read in English, mm -hmm. versus like, you know, in Catalan. They, they, they have an amazing literary culture. They translate everything into Catalan because there are plenty of Catalan authors, but not enough to fill a lifetime of reading, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, so they have this incredible culture of translation and reading and translation there. Yeah, it's so it, it's so true. The, the sort of being empire is a double-edged sword. Right. You, you sort of get everything you could ever want, but then miss all these, these beautiful gems sometimes. Yeah. 
it's the same thing as being able to, you know, you you go to France and your French is pretty good, but you try to practice and they just switch into perfect English and you can't mm. even practice. You that's, know, that's very true. <laughs> yeah, like, come on, man. <laughs> well, I I can't recommend enough that my listeners go grab. I have some questions for you. They don't need to be encouraged to read books by the wonderful Rebecca Mackay, as they probably already have uh, run out and purchased. But I just love this book and am really thankful that I get to talk to you again, Rebecca. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure as always. Well, that's all from me for now. My thanks as always to my friend Rebecca Mackay, who was the most brilliant writer in any room she entered when we were graduate students together. And she remains the same today. Visit the website at burnedbybooks.com to find links to purchase Rebecca's newest novel, I Have Some Questions for You, and all of her recommended books in translation. There you'll also find all of our previous episodes and hundreds of recommended books to sort through to find your next great read. I have a marvelous spring lineup of interviews, and I hope you'll join me for them. Thanks as always. This has been Burned by Books. <laughs>